We have literally been trying for years to figure out the best way to bring Shakespeare's sonnets to this podcast. I'm happy to say we think we finally found it. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. If it's possible for a book to be both exhaustive and sprightly, Dr. Jane Kingsley Smith has done it with The Afterlife of Shakespeare's Sonnets, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. The book is a social history of the sonnet's reception. From the first glowing review that it's likely practically no one ever read, to an original publication history that raised questions about their authenticity for centuries, through the next 400-plus years of them being adored and abhorred. And a lot of it is plain fascinating. Dr. Kingsley Smith relays all of it in such an approachable manner that it's likely not the last time we'll be having her on our podcast. I tell you that to say that this interview isn't a complete look at the sonnets. It's just the very, very beginning. We call this podcast, To Thee I Send This Written Embassage. Jane Kingsley Smith is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I'd like to go back to the beginning when these sonnets were written because they have a pre-publishing existence. So who were they written for, the sonnets, and how did they get to them? How were they distributed? Um, I mean, it's really interesting, this question of who they're written for, partly because they seem to have been written over a really long period of time. Some of them you know, maybe really 1580s, so Shakespeare potentially courting Anne Hathaway, right through to the Jacobean period. You know, some of the language is quite similar to late plays vocabulary. So, you know, it's it's impossible to say that there's one specific person because they seem to kind of spread out across Shakespeare's career. And was Shakespeare intending them to have a public life and to be published? Or do we know even, was he writing them for a certain audience? No, I mean, critics are, you know, violently opposed on this issue. I don't think we're going to decide anytime soon. My premise is really that Shakespeare didn't arrange the sequence. He didn't oversee the publication. They're probably not intended to represent Shakespeare to the world. The strangeness of the collection suggests to me that, that it's a kind of composite of manuscript poems that Shakespeare didn't oversee. So how did they come to be published? Well, there's a reference in 1598. Francis Mears talks about the sugared sonnets among his private friends. So that would suggest they a few of them are circulating in manuscript and kind of teases perhaps an audience with, you know, whether these are going to be made public or not. And then in 1599, William Jagged produces The Passionate Pilgrim, which starts with two sonnets at the beginning, and then another 18 poems, only three of which are actually by Shakespeare, even though he claims that the whole collection is by W. Shakespeare. So it's, it's interesting that the publication starts with this kind of basically inauthentic collection of poems, which aren't really Shakespeare's poems, most of them. And Francis Mears remind us who he was and, and why were these poems being circulated among him and his and, and these friends? Who were these friends? Well, nobody really knows. I mean, Mears wrote this vastly compendious book, 
which contained an essay which compared contemporary early modern poets with their classical exemplars. So Shakespeare comes in there as, as being like mellifluous and honey-tongued Ovid. But it's not very clear how many people would have read Mears's volume because it's huge and incredibly dull. But, you know, Shakespeare scholars, ever since they found this reference to the sonnets, have thought, oh, wow, this generated a market for the sonnets and everyone must have been eagerly waiting for them to come into print. And whereas one of the arguments of the book is that that seems unlikely given the reception when they finally are published. Ah, okay. And now we're getting into the published uh, sonnets period with Jaggard, as you say. And we should remind everyone, Jaggard published the first folio and he did make a lot of money publishing stolen Shakespeare plays. So first, what's in this 1599 book of Shakespeare? And you said there are these two uh, sonnets. What are they? And why do we trust that they're written by Shakespeare, given Jaggard's shady dealings? <laughs> yes. I mean, it's really interesting that the two he prints, and he puts them at the beginning of the volume, are so 138 and 144. So when my love swears that she is made of truth, and then two loves I have of comfort and despair. And these are, in in many ways, I think, unfortunate choices to kind of launch Shakespeare's career as a sonneteer because they're very kind of unusual. They're quite narratively titillating, but they don't really fit the remit of the rest of the collection, which are quite seductive, mythological poems. So there's something really So they're not steamy enough? No, I mean, if, if you look at them... You know, they are about infidelity. They're about, you know, we're having sex with each other, but I don't trust her. You know, they're not the kind of (laughs) romantic... (laughs) I know, I know they're great, but they're not the kind of romantic, pastoral, idealising lyrics that tend to be anthologised in this period. And I think it's notable that they don't get picked up by anthologists in 1599-1600. Well, why did Jaggard want to publish then these two poems by this guy named Shakespeare? I mean, was he famous as a poet at that time? He's very famous by this point because of the two narrative poems, so Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece. Venus particularly is Shakespeare's most successful literary work during his lifetime. It's it's reprinted more than any of his other plays. So he has this kind of hip, sexy reputation um, because of these narrative poems. One of the arguments of the book is that Jaggard is looking for something that will be equally worthy of comment and, and equally commercial. And that he finds these two sonnets and thinks, oh, oh you know, I'll publish a collection by W. Shakespeare. And Shakespeare was then more famous for those poems than, than as a playwright at the time, right? I mean, I think he's, he's starting to develop his reputation as a playwright. But up until 1599, the plays were being published without his name on. So 1599 is a kind of crux moment when the name William Shakespeare on a title page is starting to sell books. But really, Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Recluse to a lesser extent have lots of uh, allusions in contemporary literature. They crop up in plays. They really create a kind of Shakespeare brand that, you know, later is entirely usurped and and overwhelmed by his career as a dramatist. But at this moment, you know, he's the kind of poet of the moment. 
I love that you use the word brand to to yeah. <laughs> uh, describe this this moment because they were very conscious of branding and of uh, strategizing and publicizing. And you you write that Jagard left the title page of his book blank because, uh, well, for a very strategic reason. What what was that? Yeah, I think what everyone was wanting Shakespeare to write at this point is a third narrative poem. But all Jagged can really get hold of potentially is these two sonnets. So he generates this title, The Passionate Pilgrim, which is incredibly vague. I mean, it could be a sonnet persona. Passionate is a, an adjective associated with sonnets. But at the same time, there are narratives around passionate pilgrims. And he doesn't specify, you know, a lot of um, collections of poetry in the time talk about what kind of poems you'd find inside. So pastorals, elegies, sonnets, etc. And Jagger's title page is just completely blank. And that's much more like a narrative poem like Rape of Lucrece or Hero and Leander. They don't feel the need to explain what they are. Okay, now there's also this book published in 1609 by Thorpe that's called Shakespeare's Sonnets. So what's in that? So that, for the first time, brings 154 sonnets together and also prints for the first time a a lover's complaint. So, you know, that's incredibly important in the sense that it gathers together this collection of sonnets, none of which has subsequently been proven not to be written by Shakespeare. So, you know, it it has this aura of authenticity and of of a kind of collected lyrical poems of Shakespeare. You're putting air quotes around that, this aura of authenticity. (laughs) So it's as authentic as we can find, you mean? Yes, I think so. I mean, one of the things that troubles me is that, you know, nowadays we think about the dramatic canon as being very open, very collaborative. We think about plays, you know, quite rightly, as involving lots of other hands than Shakespeare's. But the sonnets are still viewed as very kind of circumscribed and enclosed, and this is just Shakespeare's work. None of these poems could not be by Shakespeare, which isn't something that that I really buy into particularly. You know, you only have to look at the last two poems, you know, the, the two Cupid poems, 153 and 154, which are basically drafts of the same poem, to wonder, you know, why would you end a collection like that you know, is one of them written by somebody else? What are those two poems doing there? So, yeah, I have I have certain questions. I'm, I'm a bit sceptical. I have more questions about that, too. But first, <laughs> I want to nail down this, this Thorpe uh, edition. Did it supplant the Jaggard edition? No, and that's the really fascinating thing, is that you would expect that once we have Shakespeare's sonnets, you know, the title is blazed across the running headings and the title page and everything, that there would be no need for any other volume. But just three years later, 1612, Jagger goes back to The Passionate Pilgrim, publishes it again, and this time stuffs it full of Thomas Hayward poems. Um, He doesn't put any more sonnets in, which is very interesting because, you know, sonnets are now out in the world. So it's really interesting as to why he thought that was commercially viable. Sure, but maybe if he thought, well, those two sonnets I put in the last one were duds, so, <laughs> so I'm just going to ride on this Shakespeare, Shakespeare coattails of Thorpe. And, and, and How did it go, anyway? Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't get reprinted again. But The Passionate Pilgrim 
you know, some of those poems remain right up until the 18th century more popular than most of Shakespeare's sonnets. Well, that begs the question, what did people think of, of Thorpe's collection? How did it sell? Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. There are, I think, 13 extant copies of the quarto, whereas I think there's only one of Venus and Adonis, which tends to suggest that people voraciously bought and read Venus and Adonis, and the quarto seems to have been much less popular. It doesn't get reprinted um, during Shakespeare's lifetime. It's not until 1640 that anyone tries to reprint a, a substantial body of sonnets. And there's very little evidence of people referring to them or them circulating in manuscript. You know, one stat that, that kind of always lingers in my mind is this idea that across the 16th and 17th century, there are 20 manuscripts which have Shakespeare sonnets in them. Whereas if you look at John Donne's poetry, there's like 250. Well, why didn't people take to them? And you were talking a little bit earlier about how it just didn't conform to what they wanted from lyric erotic poetry at the time. But was it also an issue of structure or tone or content? Yeah, I think just their their approach to love is in some ways so cynical and, and radical and kind of transgressive that people couldn't really use them. Um, it's like if you want to declare your love for someone or seduce them or, or, you know, whatever you might want to do with poetry, Shakespeare's sonnets would not really be your first port of call. And this is why I find the reputation in popular culture now very interesting because in some ways they're viewed as the epitome of romantic poetry. But when they're first published, they find them difficult and obscure, too sexy and not sexy enough. They just don't seem to hit the mark. Yeah, that is interesting. Too sexy and not sexy enough. They're almost too real, but in a more abstract way. I mean, also, why do people love Venus and Adonis but don't care for these great love poems? Yeah, and I think that the key thing is that obviously Venus and Adonis is mostly a poem in which Venus says, you know, come on, let's get it on. You know, I'm beautiful, you're gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> what are we waiting for? Um, and although the sonnets contain some of that, it, it's always kind of in a version that, that's slightly difficult. So, you know, the first, the opening kind of procreation poems are, you know, you should reproduce because you're so beautiful. Yes, you point out in the book that you don't find the word I until sonnet 10. There's just yeah. not really a person there to identify with. No, and that's, you know, that that's very unlike all other sonnet sequences from that period. I mean, most of them establish the identity of a lover in the opening poems. And he says, you know, this is my youthful experience. These poems describe a period of my life. And then I, I moved on, usually because the woman says no. But Shakespeare's sonnets don't start like that. They have a totally different trajectory and, and narrative. Yeah, you quote a scholar who says that reading the sonnets is like trying to make sense of Romeo and Juliet if all the speech tags have been removed and all the references to other characters are entirely done in pronouns. Yes, I, I think that's brilliant. That's David Shalkwick. Yes. What a mess. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is a mess. But in some ways, that I, I think that's part of... What's fascinating about their cultural afterlife is that because these identities, these personalities behind the poems are so vague and so kind of unarticulated, ultimately they can be voiced by other people in all kinds of different ways. Oh, that's really interesting. We look, we are different readers, you're saying, really. Yeah, I suppose 
you used poetry in Shakespeare's time to develop your own rhetorical skill. Um, you know, you learn rhetoric, you learn persuasive speech at school and, you know, at the Inns of Court because that's a function of poetry then, whereas I'm not sure that we approach it in quite the same way now. Well, moving on, the sonnets don't make it into the first folio. They're not in the second or the third or the fourth. No. So when they finally did show up, were they suspect? And did people think they weren't Shakespeare's? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is partly because of John Benson's volume, I think, in 1640, which takes quite a lot of liberties with the sonnets to really to update them. So they get titles and some of the gender pronouns are changed and they get conflated because so- the sonnet isn't a popular form by the mid-17th century. It's kind of a bit low grade. So that volume is then viewed as kind of suspect. But yeah, I mean, definitely, right? in 1709, Nicholas Rowe publishes um, this very famous, supposedly complete works of Shakespeare. And he says, yes, you know, I've come across this volume from 1640, which purports to be Shakespeare's poems. But, you know, he describes it as not authentic. He doesn't trust that they're by Shakespeare. And that does have a lot to do with the fact that they have no tradition of being incorporated into the folios. It's interesting with this guy, Benson, that uh, probably the most popular sonnet today, Sonnet 18, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, went missing for more than 100 years, you're right, because he (laughs) left it out of that anthology in 1640. Yes, I mean, no one What did he have against that (laughs) sonnet? (laughs) I don't know. No one can really explain how it fell out. But yes, but it's really fascinating because, you know, one argument that's often made is that we like all the same Shakespeare sonnets that um, people liked in the Victorian period or that people liked, you know, early in the 18th century. But, you know, this is absolutely not true. The sonnets are very responsive to these kind of publishing accidents, really, but also, obviously, to different kind of cultural and historical needs that readers have. So my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. That wasn't yeah. a big hit back then? No. I mean, the Dark Lady sonnets, you know, I hesitate to use that phrase because it's kind of fictional. But the Dark Lady sonnets are just ignored until around the beginning of the 19th century, really. And then Wordsworth thinks that they're awful and won't include them in, in his select anthology. It's really... <laughs> It's really only after Oscar Wilde, I think, that because this idea of the master mistress, you know, this seductive young man has has become so disturbing and so worrying to um, readers and and lovers of Shakespeare that this idea of a dark lady starts to kind of be reconstituted. It's like it's about Shakespeare's love is this mistress. So those poems start to become important as a reaction against this idea of a, of a kind of queer Shakespeare, essentially. Well, let's back up for a moment, because for people who don't remember um, English lit in their <laughs> junior year in, in, in high school, the sonnets are, it's generally accepted that you're supposed to read the sonnets in a particular sequence, although you dispute that, but we'll talk about that in a moment. And the sonnets, they're one through, 20, one through 126 are addressed to a man, fair yep. youth, and 127 to 152 are addressed to a woman, dark lady. Yes. And that is just taken for granted yes. today. But as you're tracing this history, 
um, and forgive me if I missed it, who created that assumption? Um, the first person who puts it down in print is Edmund Malone um, in 1780, and he states categorically you know, the first, as you say, one to one, two, six are to a man, and the rest are to a woman. But it's very surprising that, that an 18th century invention still dictates how we read the sequence. Because, you know, most other 18th century conventions of editing, we would have kind of ch chucked out a while ago. Right. And so where did he get the idea? Could you trace that for us? I mean, if you look at, I suppose it's around 126, 127. So um, Sonnet 126 starts, Oh Thou My Lovely Boy. And then Sonnet 127 has a line about, therefore, my mistress eyes. So there's a suggestion that there's a kind of fracture. And 126 is also missing two lines. And your critics have had huge amounts of fun with these empty brackets in this kind of blank space, as if there's a break that's being established between two different sequences. Oh, it sounds kind of tenuous, though. What did his yeah. colleagues think <laughs> uh, back then? Did, did anyone call him on this? Well... I mean, Malone is funny because he states this categorically, I think partly to distinguish himself from other critics. He says he's very contemptuous of other people um, who haven't noticed this and says, well, you know, very obviously the sequence is divided in this way. But then he throws this kind of critical grenade into kind of Shakespeare studies and just kind of runs away. He doesn't really elaborate on it <laughs> particularly. He rings the front doorbell. Yeah. <laughs> for and, and then he's gone, yeah. But it, it does cause a huge amount of consternation gradually as that idea is absorbed. Well, what's his defense? I mean, does he say this is, how does he explain that Shakespeare is talking to a man, for instance, that this is just how men addressed each other back then? Yes, he has various strategies and, and that is the main one. It's like he, he will quote letters and, and other kind of um, early modern documents to say, you know, the way that men address each other in friendship, and he just used the word friend quite a lot, is much more amorous than we're used to. So, you know, don't worry, <laughs> this is just normal. Although at one point he does admit that he thinks one of the main problems with the sonnets is they're not being directed to a female so he does acknowledge that that might be problematic. Well, why would he want to restrict the sonnets to just two people, one man and one woman? Instead of, it could have been many women poems, these poems were addressed to, or many men. Yes, absolutely. And and I mean, that's very much... Before so. we even get to the whole binary thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, he was trying to write a biography of Shakespeare and trying to gather some more materials and obviously there's very little documentary evidence about Shakespeare's life. So he uses the sonnets in this way. And, and one argument is that, you know, he's going to build a stronger narrative if he has only two protagonists rather than this myriad of Shakespearean lovers drifting about. Now, I, I said earlier the accepted way to read these sonnets is in order. And mm. that is, I, well, I haven't read all of them. I, not even <laughs> no, it's an ordeal. That is the... <laughs> <laughs> that is the way we read them in school. Yeah. What's your you don't you dispute this. What's your argument against reading them this way? I just think that it leads you to conclusions that are not all that interesting. Obviously it's it's important to acknowledge the homoeroticism of the sequence and to engage with Shakespeare as queer or bisexual, you know, and that's had a huge and important cultural impact. 
But I, I just feel that in the value, the lyrical, aesthetic pleasure of individual sonnets just gets lost in this narrative. And that it's actually much more interesting to think about an individual lyric and how it can be reinterpreted and appropriated and, and kind of revoiced. And that trying to construct these biographical accounts of Shakespeare's life from the sonnets is doing them a disservice because they're poetry. You know, they're not a novel. So looking for a narrative distracts you from the beauty. Yeah, I think so. And the, the linguistic genius of them and their like incredible ambiguity and, you know, and the complexity of the, the, the emotions that they express, constantly trying to kind of make them fit some kind of plot, I just find problematic. And this partly comes from my own experience of teaching Shakespeare, or teaching the sonnets, because I used to produce this slightly ridiculous handout which had you know one to one two six equals fair youth one two seven to fifty two equals dark lady and that's I just think that that's incredibly reductive and kind of uninspiring (laughs) so I decided to stop doing it (laughs) Mm, that is death to poetry yeah yeah yeah, it is yeah but that is what we're all taught and that in, in in some ways it does make teaching the sonnets easier because we all like to latch on to a plot or a story. Another thing taken for granted about the sonnets is that Malone rescued them from obscurity. Yeah. And this is another thing that you dispute. You say it's a, it's a myth, or at least, the very least, it's misleading. So he wasn't a savior of them? He was in a sense that um, the 1780 reprinting of the quarto was significant because he rejected... Benson's 1640 volume, which had been much more popular and people had tended to reprint when they wanted to, to publish sonnets. So that was important. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes suggested that the sonnets have no history until Malone, which is really not true. This idea about Malone gets quoted a lot and it ignores other 18th century editions of the quarto, so, like, there's one in 1711 by Bernard Lintott. There's one in 1766 by George Stevens. So it's not that they come out of nowhere. And Edward Capel had done some really interesting work on the quarto sequence, which it looks like Malone just kind of plagiarised, really, without acknowledging. So I'm suspicious about it in those terms. But also I think that the legacy that he created with this bipartite division and with this, you know, obsessive focus on which addressee individual lyrics relate to has been really unhelpful for the sonnets afterlife. John Benson had started, he'd rearranged all the sonnets and he had started his collection with, I think it's 67 and 68, which both have a male pronoun in them. So he had foregrounded in some way that these are about a man's relationship with another man. But I I think the crucial thing that Malone does is to kind of critically investigate them. He takes them very seriously as a critic. And arguably no one had really done that properly before. They'd just been kind of reprinted without much editorial assistance for the reader. And I want to pick up on something you were talking about before about how Malone explained how Shakespeare wrote these erotic and amorous poems to a man. Mm. That he, in the sense of loving... A man. Mm. He had he had different strategies, right? Yes. Different approaches to this. 
Yeah, so one of them is the cultural difference that we, we've already talked about, that you know, this use of a, a love language is more normal than, than it would be now, and it, it relates to friendship and patronage, and we need to kind of expand our sense of what the word love means. I think you categorize them in three different parts. There's a disgust <laughs> strategy and an exoneration strategy, as you say, and a denial. It's like the, the three phases of grief over the, <laughs> over the sonnets. So how, how do Malone's the three, these three strategies influence how people viewed the sonnets going forward? I mean, it's really interesting. I I talk about George um, Chalmers particularly and also Coleridge being very troubled by Sonnet 20 particularly. So that's the one that refers to the master mistress, a woman's face with nature's own hand painted. Um, you know, one of the crucial commentaries in Malone's edition is... Um, George Stevens saying you know, that he he can't believe how appalling this sonnet is and, you know, this is disgusting. And this is why he won't um, include the sonnets in his later edition, I think, 1793. Um, and Malone himself is uncomfortable and says, well, you know, maybe master mistress means sovereign mistress. Maybe it's they're still talking about a woman. And that whole question becomes very important for... Um, Chalmers, who says, you know, the sonnets are written about Elizabeth I, and also Coleridge, who writes this letter to his son almost and says, you know, I hope you don't think that Shakespeare could ever have loved a man in this way. It sounds like they all jump on one or maybe a couple of these bandwagons at different times. Yeah. Discussed exoneration and denial. Yes. Yes. I mean, you you know, Malone has provided you or his edition has provided you with a, an array of ways of dealing with your anxiety about this. Right, a choose-your-adventure yeah. <laughs> with the sonnets. <laughs> and it carries on, you know, well into the Victorian period. Yeah. Do you have a favourite sonnet? Oh, yes. I am fairly obsessed with 116, which is Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds Admit Impediments. Oh, that's my favourite. Yes. yes. <laughs> Why? Why? I mean, I'd Why like to go it? for something a bit more kind of cool and obscure, but I do think it's incredibly beautiful. Um, and also it, it has this kind of plangent tone. It has a kind of drama. It, it probably has the most interesting afterlife of all the sonnets that I looked at. So, yes. And and I enjoy the, the critical debate about whether it's got anything to do with marriage or not. You know, some people are like, no, it's absolutely not to do with that. And other people are like, well, it doesn't use the marriage terms from the Book of Common Prayer. It probably is about that. I, I do find it very moving. And it, it has a, a really interesting life in kind of popular culture. You know, think about Ang Lee's film Sense and Sensibility, um, which uses it yes. in a very kind of moving way, I think. I love, I did, I don't know the scholarly discussion around it. I I love that it's about mature love, mm -hmm. yeah, as opposed to romantic love, which is mostly so many of the sonnets are. Yeah, I mean it's still incredibly idealistic, isn't it? The idea that that your love is kind of unalterable and unchanging, um, no matter what the kind of circumstances. Oh, absolutely. So it, I think, and that's one of the reasons. But I, think I read why... into that all of my understanding of, of, of love after the romantic love yes. has passed. I mean, I, I think one of the things I find moving about it is that it seems to me that you could use it equally for, well for a wedding or for a funeral because it's kind of, its message is 
if it has a message is is kind of the same i mean i actually read it at my brother's wedding but it, it i always find it incredibly moving when you think about death parting people who love each other yeah and i love that we're ending on this note of the utility of the sonnets yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we like like the uh shakespeare in shakespearean times we we think of them as these commodities that we can wield yes yes what are they occasions. for <laughs> yeah Exactly. What is poetry for? Well, I I love talking with you, and I'm so glad that we're going to get another chance to talk with you because you have written a book that just keeps on giving, and there's a whole there are whole other chapters. Um, So, in the future, you will be back on the podcast. And thank you. No, thank you. It was my pleasure. Dr. Jane Kingsley Smith is deputy head of the Department of English and Creative Writing at the University of Roehampton in London. She edited Love's Labor's Lost for the Norton Shakespeare 3rd Edition and The Duchess of Malfi for Penguin in 2015. She is the author of Shakespeare's Drama in Exile, published by Palgrave in 2003, and Cupid in Early Modern Literature and Culture, published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. Her latest book, published in 2019 by Cambridge, is The Afterlife of Shakespeare's Sonnets. Dr. Kingsley Smith was interviewed by Barbara Bogate. Our podcast, To Thee, I Send This Written Embassage, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Gareth Wood at The Sound Company in London. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. If you are and you're looking for a way to let other people know about it, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That really is the best way to help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.